So yes, welcome to those who are visiting. It was a busy, busy weekend with all the graduation ceremonies. A few special ones, if you have not uh, heard or been around or seen. One, uh, Carlton Payne that we've been praying for, recovering from cancer, teacher at TCS, I believe mid-year. Uh, he was here yesterday for, for graduation and uh, receiving his master's, was able to complete that online. So it was exciting to see him come by the school and ready to get things going in the fall as well. Melissa received a, a, a degree for Tom on Tom's behalf, Liberty recognized and honored him. So that was a very, very moving time for, for her as well. Uh, ben Eswine, our own Ben, we knew he was smart, but they gave him an award uh, for um, uh, recognizing study research or something, some degree, diploma. I hope it gets him a bonus of some kind, you know, at the Liberty. So uh, a number of our people recognize a number of you here to, to recognize those who graduated and all that hard work. So thankful for that. Yesterday, I'm, lo I'm looking forward to completing uh, Psalm 119. I'm not going to do a Mother's Day lesson. It sounds like to me there's already a barn burner lesson <laughs> message already early so pastor farrell covered that he covered all those things we are not able to say as husbands apparently so he's uh i haven't heard it so i come here early in the morning to kind of set up here so i get to hear it next i'm sure i'll take some good notes for that as well so looking forward to that let me go ahead and invite you to turn psalm 119 and and complete our our time for those of you who who have not been here from the beginning, we've been covering the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet that we find in Psalm 119. Tackled this, this, this chapter knowing that when you first read it, you're thinking, wow, this covers a lot of the same ground. He's repetitive, but we talk about what Hebrew poetry looks like and why he repeats it in the way he does, why it builds in intensity, and reading through, and we'll finish up with going back and seeing Spurgeon's comment about about this text and, and why it was so valuable. So we covered it in basically two four-month sections. We took probably about eight, eight to 10 months to cover it and completing that today. We have a couple more Sundays before we pick up our summer series, first of June. But today we, we land with this doxology, this, this praise to God in the last letter that we looked, we started looking at that and finishing up the last stanza last week and picking up on this last one uh, today, so backing up just a little bit, we we picked up on on uh, going back to to 18, uh, letter 18 or stanza 18, where he talked about the the Sade stanza, where he's talking about the righteous one. He elevates there what what the righteous one is, and we we began forming the image there of of seeing God as the righteous one, the right one, the good one, and we, from there starting to forge, we we're starting to see this this image of what he's trying to picture for us throughout this entire psalm, we start seeing that jail here as we end the chapter. This idea that God is good, his word is good, God and his word are one. I trust one, I trust the other, I believe in one, I believe in the other, I obey one, I obey the other. So we see this, this picture that's given to us throughout Psalm 119. So we saw this, this righteous one pictured in... Um, stanza 18 and he'll pick this back up in verse 172 in his final stanza as well we'll see him pick up some of these pieces that he's been covering throughout in this last stanza from there we went to stanza 19 and 20 
the Kof and Resh letters where he talks about his cries and hope and expectations. We have all these pleas that are made in those two stanzas. And then last week, in the last two weeks actually, we started the, the Shen stanza where he has these six declarations of integrity. We, com- we did not quite complete that last week, so we'll do that today briefly and then pick up on our last stanza as well. So in a previous stanza, he talks about these six indications of integrity. Talks about um, godly fear prevails over human pressure. We talked about in verse 161, where he, uh, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in all of your words. We talked about his response to that. So godly fears prevails, prevails over human pressure. Then we saw his other declaration of integrity, verse 162, where he says, Godly contentment rivals human materialism. He talks about receiving a great treasure. This treasure, this word treasure, is just spoils of war that uh, is um, his treasure that he receives, and he treasures the word and treasures obedience to God's word. We talked about human injustice. Godly commitment provides perspective on human injustice. In verse 163, he talks about what he hates and what he loves. We emphasized last week the idea that um, the, the contrast between the more you learn to love God's word, the more you have a hatred and disdain for, for falsehood, for lies, for worldliness, the more that contrast is there. Someone who is attracted to the world is also an indication of where he's at with, with the word and his love for the word. It reminded me of this one tool, I forget what it's called, some mechanic might tell me, but where you... You, you measure the distance between two things, and as you, as you move one, the other moves in opposite directions. So the more, you, the more you love God's word, the more you run from worldliness and all that that would entail. Verse 164, godly praise is rooted in the character and nature of God. He praises God and thanks God. We talked about uh, thankfulness and gratefulness surrounding uh, his praise, and we, turn, we are introduced to the word praise in word, verse 164. And, of course, he'll come back in our final stanza as well. Verse 165, rooted in God's, rooted in the love of God's word. Uh, and then the last one that we did not finish last week is verse 166 and verse 168. It speaks to godly, godly obedience. He talks about the, his, uh, well, I might go back and read those two verses. Verse 166 uh, through three verses through 168. He says, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. We see this, this one thing that's, that's constantly seen in chapter 119 is as you love God's word, as you love the Lord, obedience is an outflow of that. There's never a discrepancy between loving God, loving his word, and being obedient to that word. And he, he continually emphasizes that, and there's no room for not just contradiction, but there's no room for um, loving God, loving his word, and then somehow not following up with the desire to obey and be faithful to the Lord. I put down here in my thoughts is that we do not obey to be accepted. We obey because we are accepted. There is a form of Christianity, of religious practice, where we tend to, we obey out of a desire to be approved, 
we, we obey out of a desire somehow to, to demonstrate our, our faithfulness, but we, we obey in, in somehow the sense to my contribution to my faith. But he obeys. We do not obey to be accepted from God. We obey because we are accepted. We do not obey to be loved. We obey because we are loved. And this is an outflow of that. Imagine the difference now. For the sake of time, I will make sure that we get to our last stanza correctly. But for the sake of time, I, I wrote down the, the idea that what, what's the difference between obeying to be accepted or obeying to be loved versus obeying because we are accepted and obeying because we are loved. One is indicative of a, frankly, a very legalistic type of religion where you have this set of rules and regulations before you and you feel like somehow I'm spiritual if I follow these. Somehow God approves if I do these. It's me waking, waking up in the morning and feeling like, well, if I have my devotion seven days in a row, I must merit going before God today because I've been faithful for the last seven days. It's somehow because of the way I dress, the way I talk, the places I go, the places I don't go, and what I do or don't do, somehow it gives me greater access to God. What a, what a difference from what the psalmist describes because he, in his cry, describes his ability to come before God based on God's outpour of love to him and his obedience flows, flows from that. What a difference it makes when you learn as you're raising your children. And, and I often bring the analogy of children to our lives because you're, many of you are in that phase no matter where that child is at. As a matter of fact, when it comes to being a mother, right, you're, you're never not a mother. Your children are I know your kids don't know that yet. They don't understand that yet. I've had to tell my kids this. It's your mother. She's still your mother, even if you're 22, even if you're 24. And yes, she's still going to ask you. You're going out like that without a coat on because she's your mother. That's what mothers do. But you're not her mother. But I'm not her mother. <laughs> so you, you want to develop what in your children? You don't want them just, when they're young, you're happy that they have blind obedience. I mean, you're happy when you say, don't do this, they don't do it. But very quickly and gradually, it grows into, I want them to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Because they love doing what's right. The psalmist describes not this sense of, I'm doing what I'm doing because I, I, I'm, going to gain, I'm going to gain greater access to God. I'm doing what I'm doing because God loves me. And I recognize, I understand that, and that outpouring of obedience flows from that. And ultimately, we as children, we want that from our kids. My kids sometimes will say, just, why don't you just tell me what to do? I don't want to tell you what to do. I want you to think through this, process this correctly, and I want you to have a desire to do the right thing. What's the, what's the right thing in this situation? Half the time they know it, they just don't really want to do it, and they want you to give an exit plan for that. But... Man, what, you know what joy there is when your children come to church because they want to come to church? They no longer come because you're saying, we're leaving, get in the car, buckle that car seat, whatever it is. They come now because they desire to hear. They thirst of it. Wow, I'm telling you, that's, there's no greater joy than that. So you, you see that, and of course, the psalmist describes that type of, of relationship as well. Let's go ahead to our, our final stanza, verse 169. The final letter of the um, Hebrew alphabet, the letter Tal. 
And he gives here, we're going to see three things that gives us a, a doxology here, which is a, a, a worship to God. He finishes with a praise to God. Remember he introduced just two stanzas ago, the word praise, what it means to praise. And here we'll, we'll see what makes this a, a praise to the Lord as he completes his thoughts here. So verse 169, let's read this, this stanza together. He says, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. And it brings back into the, the idea of righteousness, right? Verse 173, let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. So our final stanza is a fitting one in that it's a beautiful psalm of praise. It's a doxology to the Lord. And three things give us the picture. Give, three things give us that tone, that worship tone in this, in this stanza. The first thing that gives us that worship tone is the twice the use of Yahweh in verse 169 and verse, verse 174. So his declaration, O Lord, sets the tone for a worship stanza. Two other things. One, he uses imperatives. Uh, give me, uh, rescue me, come and find me. The use of imperatives or direct commands and then the use of in indirect commands set the tone for a psalm of a stanza of worship here. Um, we see this all throughout. We see this is how this stanza is structured. First, you have these, the imperatives, the direct commands. We see in the verses 169, 170, 176. Then you have the what we call indirect commands. Uh, in Hebrew, they call it the juicive form of the, of the verb, which is an indirect command. It usually starts out with let him or may he. So it's listen to my cry, listen to my prayer, uh, verse 169, 170. Uh, let praise flow from my lips. Let my tongue sing. Let your hand and let me live. So those are indirect form of commands uh, that, are, that are given. And, and in doing so, it creates a, a sense of worship a sense of praise to uh to the lord that he gives us in in the stanza whereas in the previous stanza that we just looked at he's got these constant affirmations now we have these these affirmations balanced with with the humility of needing the lord calling out to god and calling upon him for and he describes it here um verse 174 longing for for his salvation these two things are not contradictory. As a matter of fact, constantly, that's one thing we see constantly with the psalmist in Psalm 119 is he makes these, these bold declarations at times, these affirmations of what he's doing. One hand, he'll say, Lord, I seek after you. Then he says later, I don't seek after you. you know, and, and we see this constant balance. And really, it's, it's one where uh, the psalmist is, on one hand, exerting himself. On the other hand, it's never trusting himself. One saying, making claims that he's making claims based on the promises of God, based on God's promises to him. Sometimes we can be so, uh, we want to be so humble that we're, you know, we, we have, we're afraid to assert truths that God has given to us. And you see the psalmist at times seem very bold in his assert, 
asserting things, but yet always balancing that with a great need for, for him. As a matter of fact, one of the beautiful things about this, completing the psalm in this way, is completing, I know I'm jumping ahead just a little bit, but he starts out in verse 2 of Psalm 119, talking about seeking the Lord, and then he ends Psalm 176, verse 176, rather, by saying what? Seek you, Lord, seek your servant. And so we, we see that two, those two bookends, one, him saying, I'm seeking after God, but then at the end saying, Lord, seek, seek after me. So the two first verses, verses 169 and 170. O Lord, listen to my cry, give me discerning mind, and rescue me as you promised. This, this listening cry speaks of coming, it speaks of his presence. Remember a few stanzas ago we talked about the nearness of God, the presence of God, him continually affirming in all circumstances uh, the confidence that God is present in the midst of his trials and the evidence of that. Here he's, this listen to my cry is an affirmation. Now remember every time when the psalmist is crying out, what is he doing? He's crying out in hope. He's not crying out in despair. He's not crying out in hopelessness. He's crying out in hope. Because every time he cries out, he affirms God's truth in the midst of that. We, Again, we're pulling in some of the common themes that he's been given to us throughout this chapter. But it's the idea that he comes to the Lord, crying out to God, not denying God, not questioning God, but affirming God. Come to God, yes. Cry out to God. But do so in a way that you're affirming his truth. And when he's, saying, when he's saying here in verse 169, listen to my cry, he's affirming that truth. He's affirming the nearness of God in the midst of his cry. And he's requesting two things when he does that. Well, the two things before I mention that, the, the last verse gives a picture of what? And we understand understand this verse or understand this, understand this stanza in light of, of his final comment. Verse 176, he says what? I've gone astray like a lost sheep. His cry throughout this stanza is the picture of this sheep needing his shepherd. So when he cries out in the first 169, listen to me and give me discerning mind, give me understanding, he does so as a sheep for his shepherd. The, on, the only hope of a wandering sheep is that a shepherd would find him and rescue him and that is the cry of this psalmist as he completes this chapter his cry is twofold one he requests two things right first one is understanding give me understanding give me a discerning mind and then rescue me one he's asking for understanding two he's asking for deliverance actually those two sides of a coin are good part of our cry out to God in all of our circumstances. And I would cry, Lord, help me understand in hope, in your promises. Help me understand and then rescue me. Part of that rescue, interestingly enough, remember systematically as he's crying out to God for rescue, God never really rescues him in the, in the sense that he pulls him away from the trials. He rescues him in the sense that he makes his presence known. And he makes his truth known. So actually, I wonder to what extent, when he says, listen to my prayer, rescue me as you promise, has more to do with give me, rescue me in, in that, remember the last stanza about having great peace that comes from God? Having an understanding of what you're doing in my life so that I might 
receive your promises, receive your truth, and gratefully and thankfully receive what you're doing in my life. We, uh, we often pray only one side of that. We often pray only, Lord, rescue me. Hey, that's legitimate, right? Lord, I've had enough. I've had too much. Would you rescue me? I wonder, I find the correlation here better because he first is asking for understanding. And that rescue comes from him understanding what God is doing and receiving what God is doing more than it does have to do with pull me out of my trials and pull me away from those who are actually persecuting me. I wonder if our greatest rescue is really having peace of mind knowing that God's in control and God's sovereignly control what he's doing in my life. Much more than him pulling, pulling me out of the fire. Much more than, than him pulling those situations away from me, giving me understanding. Isn't that amazing that you could have a complete different... When, I, when I'm mentoring my kids, the number one thing I'm helping them to see is to understand things differently and to process what they're experiencing differently. Last night I'm driving late in the evening to go get, I got a Mother's Day gift. I gave in, Mark. I keep telling my kids that she's not my mother, but I still gave in. So I went in and got something last night, and I'm driving, and there was a little issue happened that day. And what am, I doing? what am I doing? I'm helping my daughter understand to process things differently, understand what God is doing, understand and, and allow God to be who he is in your life didn't change what happened, didn't change the circumstances, didn't change circumstances. It's having a discerning mind. And it's amazing how once you come to grips with that, once you trust the Lord in that, you discover the peace that we've talked about in the previous stanza. So this rescue might have more to do with his first request of having a discerning mind than it does to do with, with pulling him away from, from the trials. I like this one quote. I put it here from, from Michael Wilcock. He says, I need to know the right things in the right spirit at the right time and for the right purposes. I ask that in the way you know is best. You will order my outward circumstances just as you can order my inward thoughts. Now, I, gave, I, I, I plugged that thought in last week. I hadn't really had a chance to dig into that much deeper in my own mind. What does, we, we often focus on God's sovereign rule has his ability to, to to mold our circumstances but i would challenge us a step further in saying it also has to do with him molding our thoughts the beauty of god's sovereign rule and giving us understand where we don't have it and helping us see what we can't see and receive what was not normally would we not normally receive believing what we would not normally believe Seeing what we would not normally see, understanding and accepting what we would not naturally accept. God's ability to, to shape our thoughts and give us understanding of what he's doing and who he is. That's a, that's a beautiful reach of God's, not just, Lord, I know you're a sovereign God, so fix my problems. Lord, I know you're a sovereign God, so fix my circumstances, but it's up to me to understand them. No, Lord, help me understand what you are accomplishing and what you are doing and ultimately what you are and who you are. We see this, this mixture of boldness and, and humility displayed here. I'll put down, oops, come back on that one. We see his plea for, for grace, and I, I could probably dig deeper into in the subject one day, the idea of, of receiving an inward grace and an outward grace. It's an inward grace that gives us understanding, and an outward grace 
where I need to be rescued. I could give you, I'm sure you could give me testimonies of people that you've witnessed to and talked to, family, believers, or non-believers rather, family that's there, and you try to speak to them, and you, just, you it, there's no, the light doesn't come on, not because they're not brilliant, but because they don't understand, they don't see it. Do we... Do we rejoice just in, in knowing? How many times I pray, Lord, thank you for not leaving me in darkness. Thank you, Lord, for giving me understanding. Because I speak to people all the time who don't understand. And they give the now. In the old days, I would say, well, they don't understand because they don't want to understand. I've seen people sit there and, and they're just clueless. What a beauty it is to, to see God eliminate one's mind and heart and give them understanding and, and God working that way. So he pleads for not just an inward grace to receive understanding, but an outward grace, one needing to, to be rescued as well. Spurgeon says that the Lord, in answer to prayer, frequently delivers his children by making them wise as serpents as well as harmless as doves. I was talking to, to Nate the other day. We get a chance to meet on a regular basis at school, and he just he says, "Yeah, you need the wisdom of Solomon." He says, "Boy, he doesn't he didn't realize I've been praying every day for the past month. Lord, give me the wisdom of Solomon because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm clueless." Now, the key is to walk around like you know what you're doing. I get that. <laughs> That's look like you own the place, but in your heart, you're thinking, "What on earth am I doing?" This thing could fall apart at any moment. This thing could go south at any moment. It's, it's amazing that balance of one minute affirming God and the other minute just realizing affirming God but not depending on your own abilities and praying that he would give that understanding that is so desperately needed. And even in that provides the rescue that I so much need as well. Verse 171, 172. Let praise flow from my lips. We see two parallels between these, these, two, these two verses. You see it in his use of let, my pray, let praise flow from my lips. Then he uses the image of tongue in the second verse. He talks about praise in the first verse, uh, singing in the second verse. Sorry, Fred. I don't know what your translation says. It says singing here. So I know Fred's our resident non-singer. But <laughs> nevertheless, talks about verse taught you your decrees in verse 171 and your commands in the, the second verse. The psalmist's plea now turns to praise because his plea is a hopeful one. When your plea is a hopeful one, it turns into praise. If your plea is a desperate one or a hopeless one, it turns into grumbling and complaining and questioning. But when your plea is a hopeful one, it turns into praise from your lips, from your singing, from your words. My lips pour out praise. It pictures Ross, in his description of this, says it pictures his worship like a gushing spring of water. What gushes from his, his praise is... From his lips is this is this praise to God, this worship to God. It's it's like this culminating gushing moment as he ends his his song in Psalm 119. And what is the focus of that praise? We see it in the verse in the end of verse 172. It says for what? Not only teaching, so it goes back to what? 
goes back to the understanding nature. His praise is related to his ability to what? Because you've taught me your degree. So now you've given me understanding. Two, he says what? For all your commands are what? Are right. They're good. They're righteous. I think, I think it's Martin Luther. I think I read his quote a little bit later on. He talks about the, the, the swell of tears just flow at the end of the stanza because he's, he's contemplating in the greatness of God and worships God. He says, flows from my lips this worship, this gushing spring of water because I, because you've given me the ability to understand that your commands are right. They're good and they're just. The knowledge of the righteousness of God is the focus of his worship. The God to whom he brings his pleas and praise is the righteous God. This is the God who can trust, that we can trust to do what is right because he himself is righteous in who he is. Spurgeon says that when a man has so high an opinion of God's commandments, it is little wonder his lips should be ready to extol the ever-glorious one. Verse 173 and 174. So let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. This, this plea increases now, increases now with this culminating longing for the salvation of the Lord. He needs, he describes his need for the Lord's mighty hand, his powerful hand to be ready to help him. Ross, in his comment on this text, says he, the, the, the psalmist is pleading for God to do for him what the songwriter cannot do for himself. And when I come to that same understanding that God can only do for me, that I, can, I cannot do these things for myself, that I cry out to the one who can do it. But as long as I'm still determined to do things for myself, that I, I rededicate myself, right? This recommitment, this rededication, this, this emotional drive, I'm going to do better. And I, this recommitment, instead of understanding that, no, I cannot. I need him for understanding and to rescue me. And I cry out to that one, and I long for the salvation. The text could read this way. One other author puts the text this way. He says the text could read, put your hand out and steady me. Since I've chosen to live by your counsel. This hand that he described in verse 173, let your hand be ready. He says it, it's a description of having the hand of God steady, steady me. It's by all means, you know in reading it, that it's not a flippant statement that he's making. He's not making just this, uh, this taking the Lord's name in vain, just, oh God. He's, no, he's, he's longing for God. And the description of that is a very passionate, a very passionate one here. Verse 175, 176 are two last verses. It says, Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. We need the Lord to deliver us from our enemies, and we need the Lord to deliver us from ourselves. It's not just... Delivering me from my enemies is your rules help me. I need them. I need that deliverance. 
James Boyce, I put, the, I put his uh, comment up here. It says, God's deliverance from sin, from his penalty, from his power and presence, from the evil influences and outlook of the world, and perhaps even from the power of the devil, we can do nothing to deliver ourselves. So we need to ask God for salvation, which is what the psalmist is doing. I think what's interesting, though, too, when we use the term, sometimes we use the term wandering as a sheep to give the idea that somehow it's a one-time wandering, and now we've been rescued in Christ. But actually, the wandering described here, the tense he's using, is this ongoing wandering. In other words, it's not like I was wandering and he saved me, and now I'm no longer wandering. Yes, in one sense, we're in Christ and we're in the fold, but he's describing an ongoing propensity to wander and an ongoing need for God to bring him back and to direct him and to guide his thoughts. He's wandering like a lost sheep. He does not forget, he said, the Lord's commands, but he cannot find his way home. The Lord must seek him out. The Lord must find him. And the Lord can do what only the Lord can do for him, and that's bring him safely and return him safely home. John Piper points out the word is used that the sheep will die if they're not found. I would say that's true on a salvific side of things, of course, but I also say that's true for our own spiritual walk, that the shepherd doesn't continually guide us and rescue us and search after us. We'd be continually have this propensity to wander and doing so bring about spiritual death. So I mentioned earlier that the, the Psalm 119 begins with verse 2, Joyful are those who search for him with all their hearts. And he ends with this contemplating the fact that it is not he who seeks God, but God who seeks after him. Not only will the great shepherd search the wayward sheep, isn't it? true about all of us as the more we get to know God the more we understand that it is not me searching after him it's him searching after me and the more you dig in God's word and the more you're in love with God's word the more you're passionate about God's word the more you're obedient to God's word the more you realize how much you depend on him and how much you realize your need for continually that shepherd to Use his shepherding staff to guide and direct you as he does through his word. There's one last long quote I've got here from Martin Luther. He comments on the, the way this psalm finishes, but he says, Therefore, at the end of the psalm, he says, The psalmist especially calls to mind the divine pity out of the greatness of his wretchedness. For if he strayed like a lion or a wolf, he would not need to be grieved. In other words, he's saying the picture of straying sheep. Now, I'm not a straying lion or a straying bear. I'm a straying sheep. For if he strayed like a lion or a wolf, he would not need to be grieved. But because it is a little lamb that goes astray, it is a wretchedness that needs a shepherd, that needs a pasture, that needs a watchman, that needs a sheepfold, and many other household cares. And the straying one lacks all of them. Indeed, what is most wretched of all is that it does not know how to come back on the way, but needs to seek it. Thus, this verse is extremely emotional 
and full of tears, for truly we are all thus going astray, so that we must pray to be visited, sought, carried over the most godly by the most godly shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God blessed forever. What a what a concluding remember in in, in Hebrew poetry we have this this spiral emotional grow he, he he adds to his thoughts to where it's not it's normal when you read the psalms to have an emotional swelling because it's written in such a way that he compounds the truth and at the end you you walk away moved and so as he ends this this psalm 119 he he gives us the um this this doxology this praise to god and brings together these these thoughts that he's had throughout this entire this entire song i want to go back on one thing and i'm going to finish with this and perhaps after that i got we got two three minutes if someone has a something they want to add to that or mention maybe a comment from something that you've highlighted from from our, our time in psalm 119 let me come back to the first statement we had about Spurgeon's comment on this text, because as I was debating whether or not we should study Psalm 119, I think, boy, it's, it's long, it's going to be repetitive. And I read this comment as we started our series, and I want to end with that comment as well, and see now how, how does his comment now make sense based on the fact that we spent so much time in, in, this, in this chapter. Spurgeon said this about Psalm 119. He says, its expressions are as many as the waves of the sea, but his testimony is as singular as the ocean. The entire psalm deals with one, with only one subject, although it consists of a considerable number of verses. Although some verses are very similar to others, the exact thought is not repeated throughout is 176 verses. There is always a shade of difference, even when the color of the thought appears to be the same. Some have said that it lacks variety, but that is merely the observation of those who haven't studied it. I have weighed each word and I have looked at each syllable and extended meditation, and I bear witness that this sacred song has no redundancy in it, but is charmingly varied from beginning to end. Its variety is like that of a kaleidoscope. Uh, French word makes more sense. From a few objects, innumerable variations. She's been correcting my English forever, so that's good. I need that. She's that translator for me. From a few objects, innumerable variations and combinations are produced. I do not believe that any subject other than a heavenly one would have allowed for such a psalm to be written about it, because the themes of this world are narrow and shallow. A mind less divine could not have handled such a writing, even with a sacred subject. In the same way, all human books grow stale after time, but with the word of God, the desire to study it increases, while the more you know of it, the less you think you know. I reread that comment that I read at the beginning of the series, and now I reread it at the end, thinking, "Wow, what a what a different perspective on it now that we've we've walked through this." <coughs> we've got two minutes. Somebody want to share something that they've gathered from this, or a verse that called out to you in the psalm? I know we've covered a lot of ground even today, but anybody have anything they would like to add to that this morning? study of each stanza has really opened up someone that didn't think us. I grew up reading through the Bible every year in my, my high school 
Well, happy Mother's Day. Have a blessed Sunday. Let's close us in a word of prayer. Father, I am grateful for your word. I'm grateful for your salvation. I'm grateful that you taught us your word, that you teach us your word, and you give us understanding. Lord, I thank you for giving us such a a rich song to sing and to read. Forgive me, Lord, for so many times having just read through it casually and not more intense, intensely. Lord, bless our families. Give them just a, a blessed, restful day. Bless the preaching of your word before the pastor as he brings the word in the second service. We commit these things to you, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.